very heartbeat of God is a rescuing heart. It was for this reason that Jesus came to earth. It was for this reason that Jesus died on the cross, shedding his blood for our sins, so that we might be rescued. The thing that we call the church has in many ways morphed into something very different. It's no longer a place of rescue. But the true church that is truly being the hands and feet of Jesus will always be a place of rescue. It'll be a place that anybody should be able to come to and find help from God. In this first 17 verses of Mark chapter 2, we see two different ways that Jesus rescues people. And I want to look at those this morning. It's going to be the topic of our text. But before getting there, I want to just say a quick word on healing. Jesus did a lot of healing. But what we see is something really important in our text. It tells us that he was preaching the word to them. It tells us that he went again by the seaside, and there he taught them the word miracle. And what we see is that while Jesus would heal, Jesus would perform miracles, Jesus would do these things like heal this man who was paralyzed, the ultimate aim was always the preaching of the gospel. And it's important that we understand that as a church and that we understand why. Supernatural healing is good. And God still does it sometimes. The the days of healing and miracles are not something that's in the past. God can and does still heal sometimes. God has not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But healing is temporary. Everybody that was ever healed eventually got sick again. The three people that the Bible records for us that Jesus brought back to life, all three of them eventually died again. Healing is temporary, whereas salvation is eternal. And so the proclamation of the gospel, which leads to the salvation of a soul, is far superior than healing. God would use healing at times to bring in the crowds. Jesus points out to these these people that were skeptical that, look, which is easier to say, that a person's sins are forgiven or to tell someone that's paralyzed to get up and walk? Which one is, is harder to do? And the point is that only God could do either. And so the healing demonstrated that Jesus was the Son of God. The healing demonstrated that he had divine power. But the ultimate goal wasn't just to heal people. The ultimate goal wasn't just to make the paralyzed man walk. The ultimate goal was that they would receive the message of the gospel and truly put their faith in Jesus Christ and find salvation. The same is true today, brothers and sisters. Our mission must be to proclaim the gospel. Now, let's take a look at rescuing the perishing. There's Four lessons that I think we learned from our text this morning that are important to us when we learn 
as a church, how do we do a good job uh, rescuing the perishing? How do we do a good job helping the hurting? The first thing I want us to note is that some people must be carried to Christ. There are some people that are just paralyzed and can't get there on their own. Now, I recognize this man was physically paralyzed, as in literally, physically, he couldn't get there without help. Thank God he had friends that loved him enough to say, we're going to help you do what you can't do on your own. The principle applies today, folks. There are people that are paralyzed and can't get to Jesus. Sometimes it's different reasons. They might have been hurt and wounded by uh, spiritual leadership in the past, and there's just an honest fear about what would happen if they tried to reconnect to the church, and they think, I, I don't, you know, I'm just, too, I can't go. I'm paralyzed. What happened to me? I got hurt there. I got wounded there. And you'll find that that person is going to need some help, help from you, help from me to come alongside them and say, hey, we'll go with you. We'll do this thing together. We won't leave you there. We won't abandon you there. We will make sure that you are safe. We'll make sure that we get you where you need to go. Sometimes people are paralyzed from coming to the Lord because they don't actually know the Lord. Let me explain. Before I was a Christian, I just had a really wrong view of God, the God that I believed this book taught I was just wrong. What I believed about God was not true at all. But I thought I was right. And so, you know, my crazy years before I was 20, before I got saved, my high school years, even when there was a need in my life, even when I was in a situation where I really needed help, the last place I was going to go was to Jesus. The last place I was going to go was to the church because I had a false view of the church. I had a false view of who Jesus was. And I'm like, I'm not going to that guy. And so to that degree, I was paralyzed when it comes to like getting to where I needed to be to get help. There are a lot of different things that will keep people from getting to Jesus. And brothers and sisters, one of the lessons of our text is that we have a God-given responsibility to come along people sometimes and help them get to Jesus. You know, what does that look like? Well, I think for certain, it looks like prayer. Sometimes, you know, there's nothing you can do but pray. But sometimes it looks like caring enough to invite people, caring enough to come alongside somebody and just talk to them, listen to them, and invite them into your life. Invite them to join you at church. You know, invite them to be a part of what's going on with, with your life and with God. And every now and then you'll find people, I've had them in my life, where it feels like you've invited them so many times, you've said it so frequently, if you say it one more time, you're just going to become that guy or that gal that they just don't want around, right? Like, oh, here comes Joplin, and I'm just going to have to tell him I ain't coming to church again. I don't want to be that guy. And you sort of get that spirit of discernment when it's like, I've said everything I can say, I've done everything I can do, I've extended every invite that I can extend. But you know, my, my willingness to help, if you will, carry that person to Jesus, it doesn't have to stop. It just kind of changes. And sometimes I learn all that I can do is pray. A lot of times what my prayer looks like in that situation is like, God, I don't know what else to say, so I'm going to quit saying. 
and I don't know what else to do, so I'm going to quit doing. And so I'm going to ask you, Lord, to do what I haven't been able to. Soften the heart. God, maybe it's somebody else that needs to come alongside and have this conversation than me. And so, Lord, I'm going to put that in your hands. I'm going to ask that at the right time and the right place that you send somebody to them that they can talk with, that can answer their questions and begin to soften that heart that they have. And, and I just begin to pray like, God, you do this thing in their life that I have not been able to do. The point being is that we have a responsibility to be bringing people to Jesus. And there are some folks who will never come if they don't get the right help from people like you and I, who care enough to do our part to bring them to Jesus. Some people must be carried to Christ. Note that Jesus, when the man was being lowered down, it says that he saw his faith and said to him that his sins were forgiven. It teaches us that there is such a thing as faith that can be seen. It's noticeable by God, and it's noticeable by those who are around. What did Jesus see? How did he see their faith? Well, the very fact that they were willing to do whatever it took to get a crippled man there, to literally open up the ceiling. They couldn't get to him. The crowd was too much, so they go around the backside of the house, get up on top of the house, open up a portion of the roof, and they're lowering this guy down. That's pretty good evidence. They believe that if they can just get the guy to Jesus, that's all they've got to do, Jesus will do the rest. So he saw their faith. James, in the reverse of this idea, makes this statement. James says that our faith without works is dead. And so... Our works don't save us, but they prove a sincere faith. And so I asked the question this morning, what does your faith look like? When people in your life see you living, with the people that you work with, the people in your daily life, when they see you, do they see your faith? Because the type of faith that gets things done is the type of faith that is visible. Number two this morning, next important lesson from our text. Notice that even in a church crowd, there are those present who oppose God. Get the picture. Jesus is performing miracles. There's a lot of excitement about it. People are coming and flocking to where he is. He's teaching the gospel. There's never been a better preacher than Jesus. So you got Jesus preaching the word. The crowd want to get to their flocking. They're, and a lot of people are there for the right reasons. And they just want to get to Jesus. And they just want to hear him teach. But in that same crowd, you've got some folks that are like, this is wrong. This needs to stop. That's not how God works. Why? It's real important to understand something. Most of these people were very sincere. Like they really believed they were right. Jesus said this about these people. He said, they will think when they kill me, they're doing God a favor. They really believed they were right. Jesus was wrong. 
Why? Well, I'll give it a shot, some, some of the possible reasons why. When Jesus came, what Jesus did looked very different than what they expected. They had this kind of preconceived idea that here's what spirituality looks like. And when Jesus came, he was just kind of outside of that box. And so they're like, no, that's, that's, that, that's, that's, not, that's not how my God works. And I think we have to guard ourselves at times in, into um, putting God in a little box. You know, I, I use the term church crowd. Even in a church crowd, there are those who oppose God. And I hope that you hear my heart this morning with what I'm trying to tell you, because not all these people are bad people. I used to oppose God in certain ways, and I was a full-blown Christian. As a young Christian, there were things in my life that I opposed God over. I just didn't know that I was opposing God. I really thought I was right, and they were wrong. And when I look at my life at that time frame, I think I can identify with some of these guys in the text. What was going on was outside of my box. And I was in a great church, by the way, and so I'm like, well, I've seen God move, and that don't happen at my church. And God moves at my church, and so that must not be of God, because if that was of God, that would be happening at my church. But it don't happen at my church, and so whatever that is, that's just not, that's not God. Over crazy things. Silly stuff. Sometimes people being too loud. And then sometimes people being too quiet. Yeah, I mean, both, both, both extremes. And I, want, I don't even want to call them extremes. Lord, forgive me for using that term. They're just different ways of worship. I had someone one time challenge me on what maybe we should take two to five minutes of silence in worship and learn to be just quiet before God. I'm like thinking to myself, oh, that ain't God. Because in my church, when God shows up, it gets loud. See? Right? And here, here's, here's the point I'm trying to make. If we're not careful, we'll have our, we'll, we will decide ahead of time what it looks like when God moves. And if you don't do it in my little way, well, that's not God. Well, that's what happened with these Pharisees in, in, in large part. And it's just it's important to note that for a lot of reasons. Number one, probably most important, we want to make sure that we're not guilty. But number two, you got to recognize that, that not everybody's always going to be excited for what's happening in your life. Not everybody's always going to understand it. I mean, this guy here, he shows up. It's the greatest day of his life. He's paralyzed. His friends finally get him to Jesus. Jesus heals him, and instead he turns into the topic of whatever just happened to you wasn't of God. Talk about bummer, right? Ruining a guy's day. And so you got, you, you got to recognize not everybody's going to understand exactly what God's doing in your life. Not everybody's always going to celebrate uh, with you when God has done something. There's going to be times that you're in a church where God is doing great things, that God is moving and people are being saved, and there's still somebody that's real negative about it. It's like, well, this shouldn't be happening, and this shouldn't be happening, and that preacher should have a tie, or that preacher shouldn't have a tie, and they should sing this song, or they shouldn't sing that song. There's always somebody that's got something negative to say and, and have some form of opposition, even in the church. we got to get on past it. We've got to learn to worship God through it, and we've got to check our own hearts to make sure, hey, 
I'm not guilty, right? I want to look myself in the mirror and say, God, help me to not be guilty. It said that Jesus knew their hearts. In, in the first section of the text, before they even say anything, they're thinking to themselves, who is this guy? And Jesus addresses their thoughts. It's awesome that God knows our thoughts before we speak them. But could you imagine being those guys? Could you imagine this thing's going down, you're there, Jesus says what he says, and you're thinking to yourself, oh, that can't be. That man does not have that authority. You don't say it out loud, you just think it. And then Jesus turns and looks to you and addresses your thoughts. That's what he did. Now, if I'm that guy, it makes me a little bit more nervous. I'm like, okay, maybe he really is different than the rest of us. Maybe he really did come from God, and he is who he says he is, the Son of God. But Jesus addresses their thoughts. He knows what they're thinking. It's another important lesson for us this morning is to understand God does know your thoughts. You don't have to hide from God. You, one of the most healthy things you'll ever do to learn, learn to do in the place of prayer is to be grossly honest with God. You ever feel like, eh, I've got to find the right way to say this, that God's going to be okay with it coming out of my mouth. No, He knows exactly what you think. He knows how you feel. And no matter how you word it, you're not going to trick Him into not knowing what's really going on in your heart. This was actually a very important lesson for me because for the first two to three years as I was a Christian, I did pray a lot. I honestly did. I spent a lot of time in prayer, but prayer was hard for me because I never felt like I was doing it right. I wasn't sure if I got enough these and thous in there to make it holy enough for God. And I always felt like, you know, I had to pray with words that were different than my normal words. And when I realized God knows my thoughts before I say them, it made me chuckle. I'm like, I wonder what he thinks about half the time when I'm thinking about what I want to say, and then I say it instead, you know, in the King James Version, which is how I used to try to pray. I'm like, I wonder if he laughs at that at all, you know? Like, and, and here was the important lesson that I learned. God wants me to talk to him the same way I would my father. Right? I want to be respectful. I want to be honorable. I, and I want to be humble, but I can just be as real as real can possibly be. And if there's anybody that you should ever just be you with, it's God. He already knows what you're thinking before you ever get it out. It changes the way you pray when you realize that. You don't have to get it right a certain way. You don't have to use certain words that impress God. You just got to be honest with God, be honest with yourself, pour your heart out before Him. He knows your thoughts before they ever get out of your mouth in the first place. Number three this morning, the third thing that I notice, whether it's in the house, whether it's out by the sea, is that things change when Jesus is in the house. When we look at the life of Jesus, lepers were healed of an incurable disease. Blind people received their sight. On one case, a man that was born blind received his sight. Uh, people that were deaf were made to hear again. As we see in our text this morning, occasionally people who were paralyzed were made capable of walking. Uh, we see that demon-possessed people 
were freed of their demons. Jesus raised people from the dead on three different occasions. Sometimes it was men. Sometimes it was women. Sometimes it was children. Sometimes it was Jewish people. Sometimes it was Roman soldiers. Sometimes it was Samaritans. Sometimes it was in Jerusalem. Sometimes it was outside in the open areas in the, in the country. The point being, there was one constant in all of these stories, and that constant was Jesus was there. Things change when Jesus is there. It is the one grounds we that has brought all of us together this morning is Jesus. We come from different backgrounds. We come from different upbringings. We come from different church experiences. We come from all sorts of different areas. There would be no sense in any of us getting together this morning and arguing about who had the greater sins because we were all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us need to be rescued. There's just one thing that unites all of us this morning, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the thing that unites us all. And when Jesus is in the house... Things change. Even in the face of opposition, right? We've, we spoke about that. We talked about how there was people who were trying to stop what Jesus was doing. But you cannot stop God. God will always accomplish whatever he sets out to accomplish. And when Jesus is in the house, things change. I want to encourage you this morning, if you're in a house that is divided, I want to encourage you to know things can change as long as Jesus is in the house. And listen to me carefully. It doesn't always happen in a week or two. It doesn't always happen because you decide you're going to get serious about your life with Christ, and so you expect everybody else around you to be changed also like that. Sometimes it takes time. and it can, Sometimes it takes years. But we have to remember that with God, thousand years is as a day. It can be tough if you're in a marriage situation and only one of you truly has this deep desire and love for God. That can be tough. Sometimes that can go on for years. But this is the promise that I want us to see this morning, that when Jesus is in the house, things do change. And you've got to trust God with that. This is not some prophetic word where I'm guaranteeing, right, if you get Jesus in your home, your significant other is going to get saved, your husband's going to get saved, your wife's going to get saved, your kids are going to get saved. I cannot promise that. I can't guarantee that. But here's what I do know. Jesus is in the house. Things change. That's just the way it works. That's what I know. And I know that even in the face of opposition, God still accomplishes his purpose. And what we've got to do is we've got to trust, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in your home, like your actual home that you live in, whether it's in your family situation, whether it's in your neighborhood, what we've got to trust is that so long as Jesus is in the house, things change. And so what that means for me is, number one, in my life, I want to make sure that God has all of me there is to have, that I'm not somehow, you know, giving God 80% of my life and then 20% of it over here, I just get to do what I want. But no, God, I am all yours. Everything about me is yours from the time I wake up until the time I go to bed. God, every breath that I take, it's yours. A hundred percent of my life, it belongs to you. I want you, Lord, in this house of mine to have complete reign. That's where I start, start with me. And then when I'm 
you know, when I'm living where I want to be with God and where I need to be with God, I want to trust that wherever I go, I'm bringing God with me. Right, Lord, I want my words to be your words. I want my life to be your life. Lord, when I walk into the room, I want it to be possible that someone's life has changed simply because I showed up and you are filling me up and you are speaking through me and you are loving people through me and I am being the hands and feet of Jesus and I'm being your son and I'm being used by you. So God, wherever I go, I know that you go and because you're there, God, things can change. I want to be that type of guy. When he's in the house, things change. The most important thing that you will ever do in your home is make sure Jesus is in the house. Now, I'm not just talking cross on the wall, folks. I'm not talking symbolism here. I'm talking Jesus truly having reign in your home over the way that you run your home, the things that you do there, the, the things that you watch, the, the way that you yeah, speak with one another. Let Jesus be the center of it all. And finally, this morning, the fourth thing I want us to note in our text is that if people weren't brought to Jesus, he went to them. So we read about Jesus going to Matthew, this tax collector or Levi, and calling him to follow him. He ends up at this tax collector's house, more tax collectors and sinners all gather around, and Jesus is there eating and just kind of hanging out. So he, he, it's not like he just went in the door and waved and said hi to everybody. He sat down. They're spending time together. And again, the religious leaders, this time, they're not just thinking it. They say it out loud to his disciples. What is your master doing? Why does he eat with these tax collectors and sinners? So, first of all, let's understand the term tax collector very different than today. But tax collectors used to be considered scum. So, that was a joke. You can laugh. It's okay. Very different. Very, very different. But tax collectors in this time especially were disliked, and here's why. The Jewish people were under the rule of Rome, and Rome would tax the Jewish people for being underneath the leadership of Rome. But the general attitude of the Jewish people was, we really don't owe Rome anything. We really don't need their help. We don't want their oversight. We don't want their police in our streets policing us. And so they sort of felt like, in a lot of ways, their money was just being stolen. But one of the things that the Romans would do frequently to try to create peace is rather than having their own Roman soldiers march into your house and take taxes from you. They would try to strike a deal with a, Jew, uh, a Jewish man in the community and say, look, we want you to do the tax collecting for your people. And this Jewish man would then basically be contracted by the government of Rome to get all of the taxes of his fellow Jewish people. And the Jewish guy would get a cut out of it for his job. And so amongst his brothers people that took that job were kind of, kind of considered traitors. And so they were really despised. And these religious leaders are like out of all people that 
Jesus would say to follow him, he's going to pick a tax collector. And then he's going to go hang out at his house. And he's going to sit and eat with them and just fellowship, just have time. This was so outside of their box of what Jesus should look like. They they just can't comprehend it. And so they're like, why does he do this? Jesus' answer was pointed and simple. Because the sick are who need a doctor. That's why. Because I came to save sinners. That's why I sit with sinners. I didn't come to call the righteous. Those who are healthy don't need a doctor. But I came to those who have need. I came to those who are sinners. I came to rescue the perishing. It's a very simple answer that Jesus gives. And there's an important lesson for us in the church. We have to guard ourselves against the same mindset of these Pharisees into believing that being spiritual means living a sheltered life. That's not what being spiritual means. We are set apart. We are to be holy. And I'm going to talk about what that looks like a little bit. But that doesn't mean that we are to be sheltered. It's very interesting. When you do a study on the men that Jesus called to follow him to literally launch the New Testament church, none of them were people who grew up in a sheltered life. None of them. Not one single one of them. None of them were you know, men who grew up as boys in the, the sacred training of, of uh, you know, the rabbis and, and learning the Jewish history and customs and all of that. They, most of them were fishermen, like rough and tough fishermen. They were men who knew how to connect to their Everybody that Jesus called to follow him. It's an important lesson for us to learn. He called men who were capable of working in the very community they were going to be reaching. And then he set them apart. they're, They're called to be holy. They're called to be separate. But that's in how we live, not where we live. You know what holiness looks like in the life of the Christian? It means that I do good to those who persecute me. It means that I love those who don't love me. It means that I'm willing to be selfless as my Savior was selfless, and I'm willing to forgive the way that he forgave. It means that I'm willing to love people with the same love that Christ gave me. It means that my speech is different. I don't talk like everybody else talks. I don't react the same way the rest of the world reacts. I react differently. We speak differently. We love differently. We, we forgive differently. We, and, and we should be doing so in a public way so that the world can look at us and say, whoa, that dude is different. You know how I know he's different? Not because he hides in a cave, but because he lives his life right in front of me. And he talks differently. He acts differently. He truly cares about me. He's selfless. He has this sense of Christian light about him that's visible. That's what holiness is. That's what sets us apart from the rest of the world. It's how we live in the world, not that we remove ourselves from it. Jesus ate with the tax collectors and sinners. 
The real question isn't why did he eat with tax collectors and sinners? The question is, why don't we? What are we doing to go to and win the lost? You will never catch fish out of a pond you refuse to fish in. You're never going to win souls out of a place you refuse to go. We must learn to be in the world, but not of it. We are in it. We are loving people here. We are trying to reach people here. We are spreading the gospel here. We are shining the light here. We are being the salt of the earth here. Our job is to be in this world and to shine a light as bright as we possibly can, not to hide from it, but to live in it. And when people could not be brought to where Jesus was, he went to where they were. You know, this should be a place, folks, that people could be brought to. This should be. But you know it, and I know it. Not everybody that you ever invite to come here is going to come. Not everybody in your life that you just wish could come and hear the preacher preach, not everybody's going to come. Sometimes we have no choice. We've just got to go to where they are, and we've got to love them where they're at. And maybe we've got to invite them over for dinner and for a meal, or maybe we've got to go out and you know, do something with them, take them out to eat and have a meal. We've got to go to where people are and engage them where they are if we're going to win them for Christ. I was thinking on this uh, point in my life that, you know, when I got saved, it looked a lot like Jesus came to me where I was, and I had nobody to carry me to Christ. looked like that. And in some ways, some ways, that was true. I was laying there in my bed all alone, contemplating suicide, and out of nowhere, the thought occurs to me, what if God is real? What if hell is real? Nobody says, here's what you need to do. You need to go to church. You need to get a Bible. You need to do this. You do that. Like, out of nowhere, my heart begins to hunger to read the Word, to know if God is true. If you've ever heard my story, you know in a span of about a month, I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And what it looked like was there was me all alone, and God came to where I was. And in a lot of ways, that's true. But as I was thinking about it this week, I was reminded of something very important in my life that I want to leave you with this morning and encourage you with. When I was in high school, I had three teachers, two teachers and one high school counselor, that cared about me deeply. And I went to a public high school. And these three teachers all witnessed to me while I was a student in high school. I mean, I had one of them sit me down and just tell me the gospel and tell me, Joplin, you're chasing a rabbit hole that will never, ever fill you. The reason you're living your life is because you have no idea. The reason you're living like you are is because you have no idea that you need Jesus. And until you find Jesus, you will never fill that void in your heart. I had a teacher tell me that in high school. It didn't change me then. I'll be quite honest. I thought it was corny. I really did. I also thought there was a part of me that was being Mr. Tough Guy. I thought it was corny they cared about me. I didn't like it. 
These three teachers, my senior year in high school, they began meeting on Wednesday morning at 7 a.m. every week and had a prayer meeting specifically for me. You know what I got to thinking? Like, God doesn't work on our timetable, right? But for me, those were the folks that were at my corner of my paralytic mat that were carrying me to Jesus. When nobody else was, they were the ones that were determined. They said, we're not just going to pray once, but we're going to meet every week. And we're going to pray for this boy. I'm going to pray for the right opportunity to share my story with him. I'm going to pray for the right opportunity to give him the gospel. And they did the best that they knew how. And they didn't see the results immediately. But I believe with all of my heart, when it looked like God came to me, there I was, and it was all just him coming to me, it was a little bit of both. It was those that had been there in the past in my life that loved me enough to pray for me and try to lead me to Jesus. It was God coming to me at the right time. And here's what I know. I just know that it's both, folks. I know that we... People answer to God for themselves, but we all have a role to be bringing people to God. We need to be praying for the people in our lives that God puts on our hearts. We need to have enough courage to be going and sitting down with these folks and being with them where they're at, sharing the gospel. And we've got to know that when we've done all that we can, God will do the rest. I'm going to go ahead and ask our worship team if you guys want to get in place this morning. I just want to close uh, this morning, first of all, speaking to the hurting If you're hurting this morning, you need to understand that Christ can deliver you. He really can. There is nothing that God cannot do. It it doesn't matter how deep your pain is. It does not matter how long you've been in the situation you're in. You need to hear this morning, there is nothing that God cannot do. Jesus Christ is the answer. And when he is in the house, things change. To the church, Christ came to seek and save the lost. What are we doing to join him in the work? In what ways are you working to bring people to Jesus? Be honest with yourself when I ask the question, do you find yourself guilty? thinking that spirituality somehow equals being removed from the world. Can the same thing that was said about Jesus be said about you? He eats with the tax collectors and sinners. Finally, concerning a faith that is visible. What would the people in your life point to as proof that you man or woman of faith. When they look at your life, what would they say? Here's the proof.